This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. We are well on our way in the grand experiments of deciding how exactly to format the show, and today we're trying yet another combination. We'll start off with a classic Urban Astronomer article, one that was originally written back in 2010, and that's been consistently popular with our readers ever since. Our feature item today introduces my new co-host and wife of 12 years, Catherine Farsfeld. Catherine and I have worked on podcasts before. The Now Look Here podcast was our show on parenting. We have five kids together, so we felt that we might be able to offer some advice on the matter. That show has been on hiatus for many months now because we record at home and finding a quiet time to turn on the microphones is pretty hard. Sometimes we'd only get to start recording at one or even two in the morning and if one of the kids were sick then we'd have to skip the episode altogether. They will be back though, that's a promise. If you're interested to know what we sounded like together, you can still find all the episodes at www.nowlookhere.net. Anyway, Kath obviously misses the whole podcast thing because she asked if she could help out here on Urban Astronomer. So she'll be presenting a series on the planets of our solar system. The first part, Mercury, will appear later in the episode. But first, let me answer that burning question for you. If an astronaut removes their helmets while out in space, will their head explode? We've all seen it happen in science fiction films. The expendable character is outside their spaceship or trapped in an airlock. The spacesuit is damaged or the helmet gets removed. His friend's frantically banging on the glass as we get a nice close-up of his terrified face. And then, well, depends on the film. Sometimes he freezes solid and shatters like glass. Other times he blows up like a balloon before exploding in a messy shower of frozen flesh. But is this realistic? You know, back when I first answered this question on the Urban Astronomer website, the one film I could think of that got it right was 2001 A Space Odyssey. There's a scene in which Dave Bowman has to get back into the Discovery after being locked out by Hell 9000. We see him take a deep breath in his pod's airlock before opening the door. The escaping air throws him out into Discovery's pod bay. There's much frantic bashing about as he bounces off the walls and claws himself to the manual override switch so that he can close the pod bay doors and restore atmospheric pressure. The entire scene is filmed in absolute silence until the air is turned back on. He is exhausted by his ordeal, but otherwise unharmed. And the only problem I have with that scene is we should not have tried to hold his breath. As any scuba diver could have told him, he would probably have injured his lungs trying to hold in the air against the pressure differential. But shouldn't there be at least some dramatic effects? After all, we know from very simple experiments that water boils at room temperature in a vacuum, and we've all seen balloons and other objects explode when the pressure outside is too far below the pressure inside. But it turns out that our bodies are not balloons, and the water inside us is quite well protected. I'm not much of a biologist, and I don't know a lot about medicine, so I'm going to quote from an excellent article on NASA's Ask an Astrophysicist website, which deals with this exact question. They say, If you don't try to hold your breath, exposure to space for half a minute or so is unlikely to produce permanent injury. Holding your breath is likely to damage your lungs, something scuba divers have to watch out for when ascending, and you'll have eardrum trouble if your eustachian tubes are badly plugged up. 
But theory predicts, and animal experiments confirm, that otherwise exposure to vacuum causes no immediate injury. You do not explode, your blood does not boil, you do not freeze. You do not instantly lose consciousness. Various minor problems, such as sunburn, possibly a bad case of the bends, certainly some mild reversible swelling of skin and underlying tissue, will all start after about 10 seconds or so. At some point, you will lose consciousness from lack of oxygen. Injuries accumulate. After perhaps one or two minutes, well, now you're dying. But the limits are not really known. But you do not explode, and your blood does not boil because of the containing effects of your skin and circulatory system. You do not instantly freeze because, although the space environment is typically very cold, heat doesn't really transfer away from your body that quickly. A loss of consciousness occurs only after the body has depleted its supply of oxygen in the blood, and if your skin is exposed to direct sunlight without any protection from its intense ultraviolet radiation, well, you're going to get a very bad sunburn. Now that's all lovely. All this theory is very well and good, but it turns out that we do actually have laboratory evidence that human beings can be exposed to hard vacuum and survive without injury. If you read the show notes for this episode on www.urban-astronomer.com, you'll find a link to a video on YouTube. The video shows the laboratory accidents that I'm about to describe. In 1965, Jim LeBlanc was helping to test a spacesuit. He did this by wearing it in a vacuum chamber. The suit developed a leak and rapidly lost pressure. He remained conscious for 14 seconds before passing out, which is about the time it takes for blood to move from the lungs to the brain. With all the air sucked out of his lungs, oxygen was being removed from his blood instead of being added, so with no oxygen reaching his brain, he could not stay conscious for long. He later reported that the last thing he felt before losing consciousness was the feeling of saliva boiling coldly away on his tongue, and it seems safe to assume that his tears would have boiled away from his eyes as well. As soon as the test team saw him collapse, they opened the valves to restore pressure so that they could open the door to rescue him. It took about 15 seconds for air pressure to be fully restored. Jim regained consciousness, and he had recovered fully before the team's doctor was able to reach him. If you watch the video, listen to the commentary, it's a fascinating story, but they get one detail wrong. They claim that no astronaut has ever suffered catastrophic depressurization, but what they mean is no American astronaut. In 1979, the Soviet Soyuz 11 mission, on its way home from the first ever successful docking with the space station, suffered depressurization while preparing for re-entry. All three crew members were killed. So, while the effects of exposure to vacuum are nowhere near as dramatic and exciting as portrayed in popular film, well, oxygen deprivation will always be deadly. But we can take comfort in the knowledge that death by vacuum is quick, and provided your ears aren't blocked, relatively painless. Right, so, as promised, here's your new presenter, Catherine Farsfeld, starting our series on the planets, with the smallest of them all, Mercury. Mercury is one of the five classic planets and an easy naked eye object. The planets stood out from the other stars to our ancestors because of the way they all moved in regular patterns against the night sky. But Mercury was unique in its rapid motion and the way it never strayed far from the Sun. If the planets were to be named for gods, 
then it was only natural that the flighty mercurial one should be their messenger. The Romans were great admirers of Greek culture and they assimilated many Greek gods into their own pantheon. Mercury, messenger of the gods, was an almost direct copy of Hermes, the son of Zeus, and a nymph named Maia, the eldest and most beautiful of the Pleiades. Mercury served as Zeus's herald, delivering messages and guiding those under his protection. Mercury was clever, with a darkly mischievous personality and a relaxed moral code. Immediately after being born, he invented the lyre out of an old tortoise shell and stole a herd of cattle from his brother Apollo, using guile and trickery. Small wonder then that on top of his duties as patron of travel and herdsmen, the Romans associated him with business and trade as well. His temple was on the Aventine, and his festival of Mercuralia was held on the Ids of May the 15th. On this day, traders and merchants offered prayers to Mercury for forgiveness for past and future perjuries, for profit, and for the continued ability to cheat customers. But how about the planet itself? Mercury only ever appears in the sky as a bright pinkish-red star shortly after sunset or before sunrise. Because it never ventures more than about 20 degrees from the sun, it is usually lost in the dull glare of twilight and is easily missed by casual stargazers. This is a pity, as it can be a very rewarding naked eye object. Not only does its closeness to the sun make it challenging to pick out, but it moves very rapidly, changing position dramatically from night to night. The ancient astrologers tried their best to find methods to predict Mercury's position, but it wasn't until the works of Copernicus, Galileo and Kepler were put together to form the modern science of astronomy that we were able to figure out anything about the planet. Most of what we read today in astronomy textbooks about the planet was deduced in the first few decades of modern astronomy, back in the 17th century. Those early astronomers were able to calculate that it takes only 88 Earth days to orbit the Sun and that it is very small, with only about an 18th of Earth's mass. As technology advanced and better telescopes became available, they were able to view it as a disk and measure the size. It has a diameter of about a third of the Earth. Once the maths were done to calculate Mercury's density, it turned out to be an unusually small and heavy planet. Hundreds of years later, the space age began and we started sending unmanned spacecraft out to explore the solar system. The first mission to reach Mercury, Mariner 10, arrived in 1974 after getting a gravitational boost from Venus. Mariner revealed a world that looked very much like the moon, with a crater-pocked surface and vast mountain ranges and virtually no atmosphere. Unlike the moon, however, there are no Mariah, which are oceans of solidified lava, and Mercury has a massive core of iron, which causes a weak magnetic field. This magnetic field interacts with the solar wind, trapping it to create an exosphere. This exosphere is remarkably thin, close to vacuum, but is able to produce some interesting chemistry on the planet's surface. The only other mission so far is MESSENGER. After reaching Mercury, it returned enormous amounts of data, completely revising what we thought we knew about the little world. There's a lot of data, and as it's being analysed, we already know that despite the fact that it looks much more like our moon, the two bodies are about as different as you can get. Thanks to these missions, we know a great deal about Mercury. It is the smallest planet since Pluto was demoted, and a very harsh place indeed. While its year is only 88 days long, it takes 176 days to spin around its axis. One Mercury day lasts two Mercury years. This means that if an astronaut stood on Mercury and watched the sunrise, he would have to wait an entire Mercury year before he saw sunset. He would have to wait another Mercury year before the next sunrise. 
It would be a very strange and disorienting experience. It would also be extremely uncomfortable. Mercury is more than twice as close to the Sun as Earth and has no real atmosphere to shield its surface. Combine this with the long days and the daytime temperature gets to higher than 400 degrees Celsius. If our astronaut can hold out for long enough, though, he'll get a chance to cool down at night when the temperature drops to minus 200 degrees Celsius. All in all, it seems that Mercury is staying true to character and making it as difficult as possible for us to pay a visit. And that's the end of our shortest episode yet. We'd like to thank you once again for listening and please remember to link to www.urban-astronomer.com on your social media or leave a review somewhere. We like positive reviews because they bring in new listeners, but don't be as shy to share your criticism either. It's the only way I'll ever learn. We'll be back next week with another episode featuring part two of my interview with Chris Stewart. Until then, clear skies. <music>